0: You must remember, to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and today we bring you another episode of our ongoing series, Six Degrees of Song of the South. As you may remember from our first episode, the most lasting and memorable aspect of Song of the South is its centerpiece song, Zippity-Doo-Dah. In that episode, you heard what it sounded like in the movie, sung by James Basquette, and by a Basquette sound-alike in the Saturday Night Live satirical version. There are dozens of other covers of this song available on streaming platforms like Spotify. The Jackson 5 covered it. <laughs> so did Doris Day. And Los Lobos. And the Hollies. Phil Spector produced a cover, sung by Bob B. Sox and the Blue Jeans, which reached the Billboard Top Ten in 1963. And many Disney associated singers have covered the song too, including Miley Cyrus, who recorded Zippity Doodah while she was still Hannah Montana in 2006, 60 years after it was first introduced. This song is not just popular. It's also award-winning. It won the Oscar for Best Original Song at the 20th Academy Awards in March 1948. You'd think a song this storied, lauded, and perseverant would be the subject of much writing. However, when I set out to learn even just basic stuff about the process of writing this song, I found virtually nothing about it in the many many books about Disney films, including those specific to Disney film music. What I did learn led me to understand the extent to which zippity Doodah and Song of the South as a whole were an intentional throwback to the extremely complicated tradition of the minstrel show. As we discussed last week in our episode on Hattie McDaniel, minstrel shows began before the Civil War— As a phenomenon of cultural appropriation, they featured white performers in blackface cycling through a number of impressions of different stereotypes of black people for the amusement of white audiences. Some of the songs and characters created to populate minstrel shows left a lasting impact on popular culture and continued to pop up in both likely and unlikely places for more than a century. Today, we will discuss what we do know about the songs of Song of the South and how zippity doo specifically fits into the context of minstrel culture. Then we'll talk about how minstrelsy made its way into Disney films, other cartoons, and live-action Hollywood films in the decades leading up to Song of the South. Finally, we'll explore why Though part of Hollywood was desperately trying to move beyond these tired, minstrel-derived types, another part of the industry was celebrating them. Join us, won't you, for part three of Six Degrees of Song of the South. The songs in Song of the South were written by a number of different songwriters, which makes the effort to deconstruct how and why they were composed even more difficult. I consulted several books about the music in Disney films and found that they largely sidestepped the songs written for Song of the South. Even the songwriters themselves have not had much to say. The song Song of the South a nostalgic hymn for Cottonwoods Over the Cabin Door and other tropes of the imagined plantation past, was composed by the Tin Pan Alley team of Sam Coslow and Arthur Johnston. Coslow, the lyricist, had a long history writing songs for films. He had worked on Hot Voodoo, the song Marlena Dietrich sings after strip-teasing out of a gorilla suit in Blonde Venus, as well as other quasi-classics introduced on screen by Bing Crosby and Mae West. Coslow wrote a memoir about his years as a songwriter in which he mentions that Walt Disney specifically sought out he and Johnston to write the title song for Song of the South, but offers no additional insight into his writing process. Another song whose writing process I could find no information about is one of the thorniest songs in the film. Let the Rain Come Down is the Ursatz negro spiritual, which we heard a bit of in the first episode of this season. This was written by Ken Darby, a vocal arranger on staff at Disney who would go on to win three Oscars for his film scores for other studios, and Foster Carling, who is best known as the namesake of an incredible John Lautner designed house in the Hollywood Hills. In the film, the Black Plantation Hands sing this song as they walk to work in the fields in the morning, and a reprise plays when Johnny is in his sick bed. Like every song in Song of the South, this was written by white men to be sung by black men and women, which puts an additional twist on lyrics that are ambiguous at best. With the lines, Gonna stay right here in the home I know, the song casts their work on a plantation post-emancipation as a choice born from a sensible fear of the unknown. Then, finally, they sing that when they're old and gray... You'd better be thankful that he let you stay. You could interpret the he in this line as referring to God, meaning the recently emancipated black workers are thankful that the Lord let them stay on earth to get old and gray, especially since so many did not survive slavery but that seems like an extraordinarily progressive message in a film that otherwise studiously avoids discussing the human cost of slavery. Given the previous lines about staying on the plantation, it's hard not to hear he as a reference to the white master who quote-unquote let the workers stay and work after they could have left to lead their own lives possibly miserable lives, given the conditions for Black workers during Reconstruction, but at least lives with some separation from the place where they had been property of a white man. Jim Corkus, a defender of Song of the South, has noted in his book about the movie that this song couldn't possibly be racist because it was sung in the film by the Black singers of the Hall-Johnson Choir. Hall-Johnson, was a multi-instrumentalist, arranger, and composer who devoted his very successful career to celebrating African-American folk music, including spirituals sung and shared by slaves. The pro-Song of the South argument contends that Hal Johnson would have refused to sing this song if he thought it was racist. That may be so. Or it could be that Hall Johnson was like most Black people working in the film industry in the 1940s, in that he needed to take the work he was offered in order to be able to continue to work at all. That he was not one to discern between racist characterizations that he lent his voice to is evident in the fact that Johnson also voiced one of the crows in Dumbo, in a scene widely decried as racist, which we'll get to later in this episode. Even today, a lot of people do work that they find to be demeaning when the alternative is to not work at all. This brings us to Zippity Doodah. Zippity Doodah was composed by Ali Rubel with lyrics by Ray Gilbert. Rubel spent many years under contract to Warner Brothers, where he started out writing songs for musicals like Dames. He wrote three or four songs that were recycled through Warner Brothers movies and animated shorts ad infinitum for decades. Zippity Doodah was a freelance job, and for both Rubel and lyricist Ray Gilbert, who also wrote the English lyrics in The Three Caballeros, it was by many miles the most successful thing they had ever done. But still, it seems that if anyone ever interviewed Rubel or Gilbert about writing this Academy Award-winning song, those interviews have not made it online or into the Academy's library, where I searched in vain for information about the writing of zippity doo Gilbert and Rubel are long dead so I can't ask them what their intentions were in writing Zippity-Doo-Dah. But there is one way to track what appear to be the song's origins. This is a recording of a song called Zip Coon whose lyrics are credited sometimes to Stephen Foster, although the melody is derived from the folk standard Turkey in the Straw, which was appropriated for use in many minstrel songs, like Zip Coon." Sheet Music, which was how consumers bought music before recording technology was mainstreamed, was first published for this song in 1834, and the cover of the sheet music, Features a caricature of a dark black man with bird like posture. In the 1830s, this song and a character called Zip Coon, resembling the drawing on the front of the sheet music, would become a major feature of minstrel shows. Zip Coon was the counterpart to a character named Jim Crow, who was depicted in minstrel shows as a dancing field hand who avoided work. And did a song and dance called Jump Jim Crow. Zip Coon was usually a free man, a caricature of an uppity African American who fancies himself smarter and more refined than Jim, but is revealed to be just as bumbling and ignorant. The first lines of the song mock Zip for being a, quote, larned scholar, a dandy with his nose in the air. But when he encounters double trouble, he jumps. In other words, he looks like a sophisticate, but underneath the costume, Zip is just like Jim Crow. An example of the coon stereotype, a flamboyant trickster who avoided work and pursued maximum leisure. Zip Coon was probably introduced by a white blackface performer named George Washington Dixon, but it was also popularized by another white blackface performer named Frank Brower, who co-formed one of the first major minstrel troops, the Virginia Minstrels. From there, Zip became a pervasive type, mocking the idea of a black person who thought they were equal to whites. Again, it should be noted that these caricatures were created by white people, albeit white people like Brouwer, who believed they were paying tribute to the Black people who they learned to sing and dance from. In the 1830s, cultural appropriation was very much in practice, but it was not called out as such, especially in the South, where Black people had no rights of property. So it was assumed they also had no right to their own song and dance culture. And in the white fantasy that was early blackface minstrelsy, white people and the pain and horrors they inflicted on the men and women who were their property didn't exist. Zip Coon the Song was extremely popular in the 1830s. But these types of characters continued to flourish through the end of the century, with such caricatures moving into vicious newspaper cartoons and anti-Black political propaganda after the Civil War. Joel Chandler Harris, the creator of the characters in Song of the South, may have been influenced by Zip Coon. He certainly would have been aware of such minstrel characters— but despite the fact that a number of websites have declared zippity Duda to be a direct descendant of zip as far as I can tell, lyricist Ray Gilbert never commented on the lyrical similarities between the chorus of the 1834 minstrel song and the refrain of the 1946 song sung by a different stereotype of a free Black man in Song of the South. In isolation, the similarities between Zip Coon and Zippadi Duda might be just a coincidence. If Song of the South and some of Walt Disney's previous work wasn't so much in dialogue with minstrel culture. In 1933, less than a decade before he acquired Harris's characters, Disney produced a short called Mickey's Melodrama, which depicted Mickey Mouse and Friends in a minstrel production of Uncle Tom's Cabin, complete with blackface. The cartoon includes images of the character Clarabelle Cow painting her face black, and of Mickey achieving the effect by lighting a firecracker in his mouth and smearing in the soot. But long before that, Mickey and Minnie Mouse were associated with minstrelsy due to their big bug eyes and their white gloves, which were often worn in minstrel shows by dandy characters as a signifier that they aspired to a higher class. In Mickey and Minnie's first appearance in Disney's first sound cartoon, Steamboat Willie, there's a gag involving turkey in the straw, which by the time Steamboat Willie was created in 1928, was well known as the basis for several minstrel songs. So from the beginning, Disney sought to take up the tropes of this other form of popular culture. And Disney was not the only animator who did this. Bimbo, the cartoon dog created by Max Fleischer, who was quickly upstaged by his girlfriend, Betty Boop, visually evokes blackface minstrels in much the same way as Mickey Mouse. And the Looney Tunes character Bosco was consciously modeled after stereotypical coon characters— One scholar studying the relationship between animation and minstrelsy has described the physicality of the minstrel as, quote, fluid, voracious, and libidinal, which is a fair description of most American cartoon characters of at least the first half of the 20th century. Cartoons, like minstrel shows, initially appealed to working-class audiences— some of whom may have enjoyed the escapism of laughing at characters they could feel superior to. The new technology of animation revived the tropes of then-waning live minstrel shows for a new generation. One of these tropes was blackface, which frequently popped up as a visual trope in animated films, but also manifested in the way cartoons sounded— As you may have learned or was reminded when Tim Burton's remake of Dumbo was released, the original 1941 Disney film featured a pack of black crows who have been attacked over the years for embodying damaging stereotypes. The leader of the pack, who was called Jim Crow in the film's script, looks like a minstrel dandy with his flamboyant bright jacket and feather in his cap. This is what he sounds like. I seen a peanut stand and heard a rubber band. I seen a needle that went inside. But I be done seeing about everything when I see a elephant fly. what you say, boy? I said when I see The rest of the crows in Dumbo were played by Black voice artists, including the aforementioned Hall Johnson and his choir. But the lead crow, who you hear singing the lead part of the song, was played by Cliff Edwards, the white actor who also played Jiminy Cricket in Pinocchio. White voice artists imitating exaggerated Black voices were commonplace in radio of the 1940s. But unlike visual Blackface, the audience wasn't tipped off that the Black characters were being played by white people. Disney was developing Song of the South at the same time as Dumbo. It was the early 1940s, and while white-cast blackface minstrel shows had waned as mainstream live entertainment, vestiges of them had filtered down into all facets of Hollywood. It was still fairly common for major white movie stars to do musical numbers in blackface well into the 1940s and some Black actors built entire careers on embodying minstrel stereotypes within films with otherwise mostly white casts. As we discussed last week, Hattie McDaniel's film career consisted of perfecting the minstrel type of the mammy. We also talked about Stepan Fetchett, who is generally agreed on as the first Black movie star known to white Hollywood audiences. During his heyday, roughly between 1929 and 1939, Stepan Fetchit's persona, on screen and off, was an embodiment of the Kuhn stereotype. He played grinning, work-averse, almost impossibly dim-witted servants who would do anything for a laugh, but were ultimately loyal to and even friendly with their white masters. The studio publicity surrounding Steppen Fetchett worked hard to convince audiences that he was as lazy and incorrigible off screen as he was on, while also playing up how well paid the actor was to play the fool. His penchant for buying expensive cars and having his name branded on their doors and lights was widely broadcast. The publicity departments believed that white audiences were not ready to deal with the fact that Lincoln Perry had to be pretty smart to so expertly play so stupid. The Steppen Fetchit character had to appear to be completely brainless, or else he might draw too much sympathy to work as a punchline. Black film historian Donald Bogle wrote a whole book on Hollywood's recycling of minstrel stereotypes. He actually names a subgroup of those stereotypes in the book after Uncle Remus. In much other writing about Song of the South, Remus is referred to as an Uncle Tom type. That term has been used in a variety of different ways over time, but for the purposes of our discussion about minstrel types and how they have manifested in Hollywood, Let's look to the example of Bill Bojangles Robinson, one of the all-time great movie dancers whose inspiration on Fred Astaire was so significant that Astaire paid tribute to Bojangles in a scene from the film Swing Time, in which Astaire recreates Robinson's dance style while wearing blackface. When Swing Time was released in 1936, most white Americans, would have known Robinson as Shirley Temple's dance partner. The Little White Girl star appeared in four films alongside Robinson, making Shirley and Bojangles Hollywood's first interracial dance duo. In this scene from The Little Colonel, Robinson plays a butler in a Reconstruction-era southern mansion who tricks Temple into going to bed by teaching her how to tap dance up the stairs. All of the music you hear in this clip comes from Robinson's tapping feet and the horn sounds he's making a cappella style with his mouth. I don't want to go up there. Why well, everybody's got to go upstairs, Miss Lloyd, if they wants to go to bed. I don't want to. Look here. Will you go? If I show you a brand-new way how to go upstairs... How could there be a new way to go upstairs? Now, you just watch. I went to the market for to get some beef. And the beef's over tough and I couldn't get enough. that too. All right. Are you ready? Yep. Come on. Ah. See, you your <laughs> Look here, your last one. Robinson is showing off virtuoso talents in scenes like these. But the movie's circa 1935 can only accommodate those talents when framing them within his character's role in enriching a white child's experience. In Black Hollywood, however, Robinson was thought of as an Uncle Tom because his roles perpetuated a stereotype of an ideal Black person as docile, childlike, and servile. Literally, in Shirley Temple movies, his only function is to be the sidekick serving a child, which was especially problematic given the paternalistic history of black-white race relations. Robinson was also perceived as trying too hard to please whites and to turn himself into the kind of stereotype that would be completely non-threatening and acceptable in all those movies alongside Shirley Temple. His screen persona was literally in service to a little white girl. He embodied the worst of what some thought of him— when he told one reporter, I like white folks to like me. The Uncle Remus character, in keeping with the Uncle Tom type, has nothing to give white people but good-humored service and love. This is a classic way of ameliorating a certain white anxiety about the past. Here is a Black former slave who loves white people which means that white people shouldn't feel guilty about the sins of their ancestors because Uncle Remus isn't bothered by it. But to Bogle, Uncle Remus and characters like him are not true Uncle Toms because Remus's whole function is to entertain and delight, which according to Bogle makes Remus more of a variation on the coon stereotype, which Bogle defines as, quote, an amusement object and black buffoon. Bogle calls this, quote, the most blatantly degrading of all Black stereotypes, often seen as no-account roustabouts those unreliable, crazy, lazy, subhuman creatures good for nothing more than eating watermelons, stealing chickens, shooting crap, or butchering the English language. Uncle Remus doesn't steal anything— But those aspects of the stereotype that Bogle refers to are clearly displaced onto his animated alter ego, Br'er Rabbit. Certainly, Remus seems to exist to entertain the white people around him. This definition of Bogle's does ignore the couple of moments in Song of the South when Remus turns serious, when he's chastised by Johnny's mom, and when he realizes that Johnny got hurt while chasing after him. These brief moments make Uncle Remus a slightly richer character than the stereotype. But the movie doesn't really care about Remus's depth of feeling or experience. His sadness is merely a function of the white character's unhappiness. In reading about Joel Chandler Harris's depiction of Uncle Remus, I was struck by the fact that, unlike in Song of the South, Sometimes Harris put the character in more or less realistic situations, in which he wasn't a mere catalyst to introduce animated animals for the enjoyment of white children. One story, Uncle Remus as a Rebel, first published in October 1877, is set during the Civil War. All of the white men and younger slaves on the plantation go off to fight leaving Uncle Remus as the sole protector of the land and its women. Remus guards the house, armed with an axe, waiting for the Northern army. In one version of this story, Remus kills a Union soldier to protect the plantation master. In a revised version, which Harris later put into a book, Remus merely chops off the arm of the Northerner, supposedly fighting for emancipation. The young mistress of the house then nurses the Yankee back to health, and they fall in love. This was Harris's idea of a parable about reconciliation between the North and the South. But of course, it requires the Black man's loyalty to the South and its way of life. It requires the slave to violently lash out at his supposed liberator in order to defend the man who owns him. Song of the South is a movie for children, so there's nothing like that depicted in it. But it's still a vision of interracial reconciliation that relies on the Black man choosing loyalty to the plantation and its masters over his own freedom. We literally see him making this choice at the end of the film. The movie hones in on a single aspect of Harris's stories— the conflict between the South and its pre-war state, represented by Br'er Rabbit, and the outside influences brought on by the Civil War, represented by Br'er Fox. In Harris's versions of these stories, Br'er Fox is to Br'er Rabbit what Harris believed white Northerners were to the confused former slaves, tempted by promises of freedom, only to be suckered into a white Northerner's manipulation. In Song of the South, Br'er Fox also represents the dangerous world outside the plantation. But all three main animal characters are all voiced by black actors performing in broad black dialect. The animal voices were provided by James Basket, the actor who played Uncle Remus, as well as Nick Stewart and Johnny Lee. Basket, Stewart, and Lee were all veterans of the radio or television versions of Amos and Andy, which initially featured white actors playing Black characters and doing a broad imitation of stereotypically Black voices. When these roles were recast with Black actors, they were expected to mimic the exaggerated impersonations previously performed by the white actors... There were situations in which Black performers adopted minstrel stereotypes in order to provide their own commentary. And then, there were instances in which the concept of commentary was lost. The minstrel stereotype became what white audiences expected of Black performance. One modern analysis of Song of the South suggests that Disney smartly modeled the Black characters on tired stereotypes because, quote, the filmmakers sensed that to utterly abandon the Tom and Mammy icons would disorient a mainstream audience in 1946. It is true that mainstream Hollywood films had not done much better than recycling these stereotypes to that point. But some of that had to do with the decline of any parts for Black actors in white-dominated films due to the reticence of the studios to misstep after the NAACP began agitating the industry to do better, which we discussed last week. By 1946, American culture had moved far beyond the backward-looking depictions of maids and slaves that had populated Hollywood movies before the war. But it would still be another four years before Sidney Poitier would make his film debut playing a doctor in No Way Out. For most black male actors in Hollywood of the mid-1940s, Uncle Remus was the best part they were going to get. And that's one reason it's notable that a lot of actors... Apparently turned the part down. Amongst the male stars supposedly considered for or offered the part of Remus were Rex Ingram, who had played Jim opposite Mickey Rooney in MGM's 1939 Huckleberry Finn and Lucifer in the all black musical Cabin in the Sky, Eddie Rochester Anderson, Jack Benny's sidekick who had played the lead role in Cabin in the Sky, and Paul Robeson, the singer and stage and screen star who was internationally famous, but also known for his leftist political activism. Walt approached Robeson in 1941 after seeing him in a stage production of Porgy and Bess. Robeson agreed to review the script for Song of the South, but by 1944... Disney decided to go another way. One actor who went public about turning down the part of Remus was Clarence Muse, a Hollywood stalwart who collaborated with Langston Hughes to write the well received pre Civil War drama Way Down South and led a slave revolt in the 1935 Civil War romance So Red the Rose but also continued to play doormen and butlers and the like throughout his career. Muse didn't get a chance to take substantial parts very often, but he was known for managing to do a lot with very little. Muse published a column in a Los Angeles African-American newspaper in which he announced that he had been paid by Disney Studios to give his honest opinion of the Song of the South script and concept— and that he had rejected the part due to his concern over the depiction of former slaves in the film as inferior to whites. And he said he objected to the dialects in which the script was written. The FBI filed Muse's statement in their dossier on Walt Disney, noting that Muse had intended to agitate, quote, right thinking Negroes to take action against this type of policy. On the part of the studio officials. Muse's rejection of Remus and his open letter was notable because while Muse had played many stereotypically subservient characters in his long career, he was well regarded for humanizing these characters and for successfully working with writers, producers, and directors to make his roles and the films they were in less demeaning that he apparently thought he couldn't work this trick on Uncle Remus, says something about how the character was drawn in the script. And Muse was by no means a radical. By the 1940s, Muse was active in the Screen Actors Guild and working alongside Hattie McDaniel to try to prevent the NAACP from meddling in Hollywood, lest they scare the industry into erasing any and all opportunities for Black performers. Ignoring the nuance of Muse's position, when activists and Black journalists later protested Song of the South, Walt Disney scapegoated Muse, telling anyone who would listen that the actor had organized the opposition against the movie out of resentment when Disney had chosen not to cast him as Uncle Remus. Ultimately, Disney cast James Basket in the part. Most accounts of the production of Song of the South indicate Basket was a total unknown with no film credits. But that's not true. He had appeared in several Black independent films of the 1930s under a slightly different spelling of his name, as well as in white B-movies such as Revenge of the Zombies. And he was a working voice actor. In fact, he, too, had played a crow in Disney's Dumbo. Still, Basket had never played a role as substantial as Uncle Remus. Most Black actors hadn't in white Hollywood movies, and Walt felt that he had done something extraordinary that deserved recognition. Also, amidst the critical backlash and protest against the movie... Disney was likely eager for a way to change the conversation. He wrote a column in the Washington Post declaring his passion for Song of the South, in which he announced he was launching an Oscar campaign, focusing specifically on the performance of Basquette. Basquette, who was 40 when he shot Song of the South but was in poor health and looked older, had never had any kind of recognition for his acting to this point. And for Disney to suggest that he was worthy of an Academy Award in the Washington Post was a big deal. Only one Black performer had ever won or been nominated for an Oscar to that point, and that was Hattie McDaniel. While other major East Coast newspapers were publishing reviews accusing Disney of racism, Disney knew that going out on a limb to say he was campaigning for basket for an Oscar nomination would virtually paint him as a champion of civil rights. Though Song of the South opened in late 1946, for reasons I can't figure out, it competed at the 1948 ceremony. The night's big winner, Gentleman's Agreement, opened in November 1947, 51 weeks after Song of the South. I don't know how Disney was able to find a loophole to delay this movie's eligibility, but it worked out. Song of the South won its only competitive Oscar in the Best Song category for Zippity-Doo-Dah, where it was up against songs by lesser composers from films that I've mostly never heard of. And Disney was able to convince the Academy to award Basket an honorary Oscar, making him the first Black man to win an acting prize from the Academy. This was unquestionably the high point of James Basket's life in show business— and one he was unable to capitalize on. Though many sources claim the award was given posthumously, there are photographs of Basquet actually accepting his trophy. He died a few months after the ceremony, at the age of 44. At that point, it was not widely known that Basquet had been barred from attending the premiere of Song of the South in November 1946 in Atlanta, because of the state of Georgia's Jim Crow laws banning integrated public events. In last week's episode, we talked about Hollywood's habit of offering tokens to those on its margins to win their favor and loyalty. Basket and his family were thrilled to accept this token acknowledgement from the Hollywood establishment. Basket’s wife even engaged in correspondence with Walt Disney, in which she admitted that the Oscar would help soothe the pain of her husband's impending death. But Baskett's Oscar was literally nothing but a token. It didn't help his career in the present day, it hasn't done anything to raise his profile historically, and it didn't do anything to help any other people of color in Hollywood. Here is Hollywood's hypocrisy on the subject of race in the 1940s in a nutshell. The industry's way of paying lip service to civil rights in 1948 was to give Baskett a non-competitive pat on the head for having played a grinning, singing servant. For accepting a retrograde role in a film that allowed for the ambiguity that it was potentially about a happy slave and under any reading glorified and romanticized the brutal Reconstruction-era South. To add insult to injury, that award was presented to Basket by the actor Gene Hirschholt. Hirschholt created an emergency medical fund for film workers fallen on hard times, which morphed into the motion picture country house, i.e. the retirement home and hospital for the industry's aged, that still exists today. For this achievement, Herschult would soon thereafter have a recurring honorary Oscar awarded in his name. Recipients of the Jean Herschult Humanitarian Award have included Bob Hope, Elizabeth Taylor, Oprah, and Angelina Jolie. Basket's honorary Oscar presented by Herschult was a self-congratulatory sop to the need to do something about civil rights while actually honoring a film that was nostalgic for one of the lowest moments in the history of American race relations and only doing so because one of the most politically conservative and reactionary men in Hollywood, Walt Disney, pushed for it as a way of drawing attention away from real concerns over Song of the South's racist view of history. Not coincidentally, this happened the same year the Hollywood blacklist really got underway. And that wave was evident at the same Oscar ceremony, where two films about anti-Semitism were up for many of the major awards. RKO's Gritty Noir Crossfire, directed and produced by members of the Hollywood Ten, who had already refused to testify in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee, and Gentleman's Agreement, co-starring John Garfield and directed by Elia Kazan. Garfield, who was not a communist, would eventually be blacklisted, and Kazan, who had been a communist, would not be blacklisted because he named names instead. Crossfire won zero Oscars that night. Gentleman's Agreement won three, including Best Picture and Best Director. It was Hollywood's idea of safe diversity, as was giving an honorary Oscar to a dying Black man who would never be able to capitalize on this achievement. Basket would never play another role, and no Black man would win a competitive Oscar until 1963. These gestures allowed the industry to suggest to one side that they were making progress while reassuring the other side that the progress was not going too far. This was both sides' political gamesmanship, 1948 Hollywood style. To some extent, That desire to have it both ways, commercially and politically, to make money off of racism without alienating anti-racists and vice versa, is one of the core themes of this series. Next week, we'll explore how Walt Disney, anti-communist, hired a known communist to fix Song of the South. Join us then. Won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. This episode was edited by Jared O'Connell. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, You youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include lists of all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at Remember This Pod, And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. You can also support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth. You can subscribe on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And here's some big news. After five years of You Must Remember This, we're finally selling merch. Go to podswag.com slash remember now to find You Must Remember This t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs, all of which are perfect for holiday season gifts. We'll be adding more items to the store in the future, including signed copies of my books. That's podswag.com slash remember. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.